Here we go. If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to the book of Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 11. Last week we started verse 14. But verse 14 has two aspects in it. And we only had time to get through the first of the two. So again, Deuteronomy eleven fourteen says, Then I will give you the rain for your land in its season. What happens to the land of Israel when the rain comes in its season? The crops produce bountifully. And they get crop after crop after crop in the year. They grow such beautiful blue bags you wouldn't believe it. They cover the bananas with the blue bags. Oh, but the bananas, oh, they're so sweet. But then it says the early rain and the latter rain. It doesn't rain all year long in Israel like it does here in the United States. It only rains in the early season and the late season, the time that's appropriate for crops. It says that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. But the early rain and the latter rain is also used to describe the first coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah. And the reference to the gathering in the grain, the new wine, and the oil tells us in which season of the year Messiah will return. So let us go first to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, which was the next reference we were about to do when I decided, nah, it was time to stop. Because the brain cannot absorb more than the derriere can withstand. And I'm well aware of that. James chapter 5, verse 7. Which begins, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. See how James relates the coming of the Lord to the early and the latter rains? That's actually referenced back to the book of Joel. So if we go back to Joel... To chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 teaches us about the day of the Lord. It includes the tribulation period followed by the Lord's return to the earth. So Joel 2 verse 1 teaches about the rapture and resurrection. It says, blow the trumpet in this trumpet is called the last trump. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. What's it mean at hand? It's here. It's here. And then the next verses down to verse 15 talk about the horrors of the tribulation period. The fire devouring, the appearance like horses, like swift steeds, chariots. Flaming fires, stubbles being set, etc. How the earthquakes before them. How people are so terrified, they're dying of fear. And then in verse 15, the Lord returns at the Day of Atonement, seven years later. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. What's the only fast day in the Bible? That's commanded by God is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom, that's Messiah, go out from his chamber, and the bride, that's the resurrected and rapture believers from her dressing room, 
Then when we come to verse 23, here's the section that applies to the early and the latter rains. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully. How did Messiah's first coming relate to the appointed times of Leviticus 23? Leviticus 23 says he would die at 3 p.m. on Passover. What time did he die? 3 p.m. on Passover. He was buried in unleavened bread. He was raised at the Feast of First Fruits. The Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Weeks. So God fulfilled those first four, the appointed times of Leviticus 23, down to the very day, down to the very hour it had been prophesied. So if that's how God fulfilled the four feasts that had been fulfilled, what about the three fall feasts? So verse 23 goes on, For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you. That's the second coming. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. If one's in the spring and one's in the fall, how can they both be in the first month? Because there's two calendars. The calendar that begins in Nisan or Aviv in the spring. And the one that begins at Tishri in the fall. So from this we don't know whether the second coming is in the spring or the fall. What do we do? Keep reading. That's right. Verse 24. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat. And the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. Remember that from Deuteronomy? When is that final harvest? The wheat harvest, that's in the fall. That's how we know that the Lord's return will be in the month of Tishri, not in the month of Nisan. Let's look also at the book of Hosea. Hosea is very near Joel. Joel in Hebrew is Yael, it means the Lord is God. And Hosea means salvation. Notice how they're so related together. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 talk about the three captivities of Israel. The Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom in 722. The Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom in around 606 to 583 B.C. And then the Roman diaspora that started in 70 A.D. And is just now coming to a close. So chapter 6 verse 1 begins with the restoration of Israel. Come, let us return to the Lord. To return is to repent. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken us, he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. There's about 2,000 years between the first coming and the second coming. How long ago has the first coming been? About 2,000 years. That means we should be getting close to the Lord's return. Are there any signs out there that the Lord's about to return? There's signs all over the place, aren't there? After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And then verse 3 is the key verse here. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. What's the knowledge of the Lord from Hosea 4? The Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. But this is an end times prophecy. Wasn't the Torah abolished 2,000 years ago? Mei right? God forbid. 
His going forth, Messiah's going forth, is as established as the morning. How many people know that the sun comes up almost every day? That's proof that Israel's not been cast off, and it's proof that the Lord will return. His return is as sure as it is that the sun will come up tomorrow morning. How many of you go to bed at night shivering in fear that maybe the sun won't come up tomorrow? And then you have to get up and watch Annie and hear her sing, Tomorrow, tomorrow, there's always tomorrow. His going forth is as established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. When did the first coming come? In the spring. Second coming comes in the fall. It's as sure as the sun coming up tomorrow. All right, back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Verse 15. And, why does the verse begin with and? Almost every verse in the Bible begins with and. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may be filled. Grass in your fields for your livestock. What's the significance of that? If you don't have grass, you have skinny cows and you end up with no food, right? So the early and the latter rains guarantee that the vegetation grows, which feeds mankind and the animals. When Messiah returns and establishes the kingdom, will there be famine? Will there be hunger? No. When Messiah returns, once more the earth will produce like it did in the Garden of Eden. Yes, ma'am. Someone uh, that I was listening to um, made a comment that in the kingdom there will not be money. There won't be coins and that type of thing. Do you think that's, that's true? Do I think that's true? No. Only because of the prophecy that says when Messiah returns, commerce is going to resume. But it's going to resume for a different purpose. It's going to resume to make sure everyone has enough. Instead of the entrepreneurs trying to put money in their pockets and make themselves rich over everybody else, it'll make sure that everybody has enough. But if there's going to be commerce, there's got to be some way to pay for it. And there's the silver half shekel that has to be paid once a year. Yeah, good point. Okay, back to Deuteronomy 11, verse 16. Take heed to yourselves. What's that mean? Be careful, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and worship other, serve other gods and worship them. What did the northern kingdom of Israel do that so offended God? Many things. But one of those was, every time God sent the beautiful crops in and they had a great harvest, they would go immediately off and give a sacrifice to Baal and Ishtar and thank them for the plentiful harvest. Oh, that was a bad thing. But I want you to know what the word serve means in verse 16. What does the word serve mean? Does it mean to cut a piece of pie? Ah, it is the verb avad, which means to work. It means to do what they tell you to do. It means to obey them. That's where you get the word evid, which is slave or servant, right? Or employee, one who works for another, one who does what they're told. 
So by using the word serve other gods, that kind of, to me, obscures it. Do they mean bringing sacrifices and stuff like that? Not necessarily. It means doing what they tell you to do. Hmm. Like more missionaries? Perhaps. Of course, I didn't say that. Okay. <laughs> right. These gods can't talk. So how can they tell you to do anything? Because there's a demon behind them. Can demons speak? Yes, yeah, it recorded in the scripture. Them speaking, yes. They speak through those false priests. And they speak through the false priests. That's true. But the scripture tells us that the idol is nothing, but behind the idol is a demon. Yeah. The other thing I want you to know about verse 16, serve other gods, serve is to work, to do what they tell you to do. And the word worship is to bow down. That's literally what the word worship means, is to bow down, as it's used here, this word. To bow down, which means to submit to their authority. When one is bowing down, it's giving honor and glory to that to which you bow down. Who came up with the rule you can't end a sentence with two? Come on. Doesn't it sound better to end it with two? Oh, well. There's somebody out there taking credit. Go back to Deuteronomy 11. We're up to verse 17. The word lest begins the sentence, which tells you it's not a new topic. It's telling you there are consequences to serving other gods and worshiping them. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you. And he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain. The phrase shut up the heavens means to stop the rains from falling. What happens to a land that gets no rain? It dries up. What happens to the crops? They fail. Beck and I just drove through Texas across roads and went through huge, huge ranches that would have six or seven cows on the entire multiple thousand acre ranch because that's all the grass that would support those cows. They couldn't support any more cows than that. Ugh, there's bad times coming. So why would God cause a famine like that? What's he trying to prove? That he's God. That he's God and these idols are not and we need to be worshiping God. The more our nation turns away from God, do we get less of these judgments or do we get more? And he's still being kind. And he's still being kind that there's some. Because he's not hammering us. Right, that he's not hammering us. You're right. Verse 17 goes on to say, And the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Good land means it's capable of producing huge amounts of crops. But for it to do that, the Lord must provide the rain in its season. When God withholds the rain, then the crops fail. When the crops fail, the animals that are used for food fail. And then what do you eat? They started eating each other. Yeah, let's not talk about that, but you're right. It actually happened in the siege of Jerusalem. It certainly is. So my next point was that drought is a curse. Yeah. Let's go first to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. 
God doesn't bring these judgments to hurt people. He brings these judgments to cause them to repent. 1 Kings chapter 17. God bless you. Chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 7. This is a story about Elijah. Elijah tried and tried to get the northern kingdom of Israel to serve God. But still, when the crops came in, they would go take an offering to Baal and Ishtar and thank them for the bountiful harvest. So what happens? Verse 7. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. No rain in the land. And it didn't rain until what? In chapter 18... Elijah has the contest with the prophets of Baal. And once the people understood that God provides the crops, not Baal, then there was a little cloud that grew and grew and there was rain in the land. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Let's see how it happens. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. And it came to pass after many days, that's many days, there's been no rain, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will present rain on the earth. Who was Ahab? He was king of the northern king of Israel. His wife was Jezebel. Verse 2, So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. It's in which year of the famine? The third year that there's been no rain. You know what the ground's going to look like if it hasn't rained in three years? Yeah, it's going to look like the western United States. And Ahab had called Obadiah, that's the Obadiah who wrote the book, the prophet Obadiah, who was in charge of the house. It says, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. Same chapter, starting verse 41. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. Which sea is this? The Mediterranean. So he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meaning the rain that's going to come is going to be so strong, so heavy, so severe, that if you don't get down the mountain now, you ain't going down the mountain. So now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. 
Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He outran the chariot. Hmm. Carmel. What does Carmel mean? Not caramel. Yes. Carmel. It means the vineyard of God. Caramel, the vineyard of God. So it was a place that had been very bountiful, very fruitful, until God stopped the rain. And it was not until the people of the northern kingdom began to realize that they're worshiping the wrong God that God allows the rain to come back. Go to Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Oops, I have five red dots out there. What is it? Let's see. Somebody just wanted to know where I am, where I'm going. We're going to Jeremiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. When does Jeremiah write? Yeah, right before the southern kingdom falls. The Babylonian captivity has begun, but it comes in three ways. Part of the kingdom has gone into captivity, part not. So why would God have sent droughts? To cause the people to? Repentance. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Why just Judah? Because the northern kingdom's gone. It's been gone over a hundred years. They mourn for the land, and they, the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. What are cisterns? They're like big wells, except a well normally has a water source at the bottom. The cistern is a big cavern cut out to collect the rain. What if there's no rain? What happens to the cisterns? They become empty. So they found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched. For there is no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Meaning the plowmen are trying to raise crops, but they're failing because there is no water. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass, meaning they abandoned their young to die because there's nothing to feed on. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals, and their eyes failed because there was no grass. God's trying to get the people to repent, to wake up, to realize that all good things come from the hand of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 38. Jeremiah 50, verse 38. Jeremiah 50, verse 38, tells us why the drought is causing the southern kingdom of Judah to suffer so. Says the drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up. For because it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. 
What have they done in the days of Jeremiah? They cut crushes in the walls of God's temple to put up the idols in the walls of his own house. Is that the height of insanity? Yes. Now go to Haggai. Haggai is an English pronunciation. The first part is actually Chag, which means festival. And the A-I ending is plural, my. So the Lord's saying, these are my festivals. And the book of Haggai relates to the timing of the rebuilding of the temple related to the festivals of the Lord. In Haggai chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. Haggai chapter 1. Haggai is right after Zephaniah. That didn't help any, did it? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, then Matthew. So if you have Matthew, go back 20 pages or so. Haggai chapter 1, beginning verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. Consider your ways. What's that mean? Yeah, think carefully about what you're doing and the consequences of it. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. How many preachers have I heard just this week saying, as Christians, don't you be hoping for the Jews to rebuild that temple? Because there's never going to be another temple. Yeah, what does the scripture say? <laughs> where is he going to sit? Where is he going to sit as, as, as king over kings, lord over lords? Okay. Yeah, I, it astounds me sometimes the way people will teach without ever giving references, of course. So go up to the mountains, bring wood, and build the temple. This is an end times prophecy that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. Talking about crops. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts. Meaning, why are you hungry? Because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew. And the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land and the mountains on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. I want you to think back to the news. A few years ago, one of Israel's greatest concerns was what? There's no rain. The Sea of Galilee is almost dry. There's not going to be water to drink. We're not going to be able to water the crops. And people started remembering an old Jewish prophecy that Messiah will return when the Sea of Galilee is once more full. And that's when they started again in earnest to rebuild the temple and to regather the red heifers and to prepare all the things for the temple. And the water level has been rising to the point that it's almost full. So that's one of the signs that the rabbis in Israel are using to say, Messiah's coming is very near. So you need to be ready. Are they right? Is Messiah's coming very near? Yes, yes it is. You went back in 2016. 
you think the level of Sea of Galilee had been down 30 or 40 feet? It had receded quite a bit. Remember when they found what they called the Jesus boat, quote unquote? It's because the Sea of Galilee had gone down so much that the seashore was much farther out than it used to be. They were saying the same thing about the Dead Sea. If water doesn't flow out of the Sea of Galilee, it's not going to fill the Dead Sea. Yeah. Okay, back to Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because if you do not take heed and you turn from the worship of the true and living God to the worship of idols, God will send famine and drought. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. What does that mean? It means to write them on your heart and write them upon your mind, right? As the scripture says in Jeremiah 31 verse 33 about the new covenant. And bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Let us go to... Uh-huh. Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. The word lay up literally means to put. To put them upon your heart as a sign. So Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. You guys all know what Deuteronomy 6.6 6 says. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Has God always wanted people to put the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God on their hearts? To follow him out of love, out of faith, out of a desire to be his children. That's what he's always wanted. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. Another way of saying the very same thing. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. And he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. Does he say set your mind on them? He says set your hearts on them. Why? That's your inward desire. Believe it or not, they didn't have a copy of Gray's Anatomy yet. They couldn't have drawn a heart if you'd given them a pencil and piece of paper. When it refers to the heart, it refers to the innermost desire. What motivates you to action? They want that to be the love for our God, the true and living God. At some point, where our scriptures say heart, the word was actually kidneys. Is that right? Yeah, there are times. It just means inward parts. Okay. Yeah. Actually, the mind is where you memorize, the heart is where you meditate. Okay, I'll buy that. Joshua chapter 22. 
Does God call us to meditate upon his word? He most certainly does. Day and night. <coughs> Only day and night? That's right. It's like how we can pray. Yeah. Absolutely right. Well, I'll, I'll add this. I just, uh, in the last day or two, read an article that a Polish scientist and um, Irish scientist had proven, uh, they get into the whole idea of how is the heart and the, and the heart and the brain intertwined, and they have proven that it's um, a quantum physics where it's an entanglement between the heart and the mind, and what affects one affects the other. So it's like, okay, science has proved the Bible true again. <laughs> the so more scientists try and disprove really the Bible, the more believing scientists we have. <laughs> it's true. It's exciting. Yeah. Joshua chapter 22. That was the purpose of the Hubble telescope, was to show that the Bible is wrong. That they needed to create another satellite that looked even further. And now that they have it, they're going, darn, it shows us the same thing. That God is real. Joshua 22 verse 5. Joshua 22 verse 5. But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And here it is. To love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. To keep his commandments. To hold fast to him. And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't that a beautiful summary of what the Lord wants of us? What's the first thing he wants? The love. He wants your heart. If your heart is solely pointed toward God, the rest of you can't help but follow. Second Chronicles chapter 31. Second Chronicles chapter 31. Verse 21. Was Hezekiah a good king or a bad king? He was a good king. He loved the Lord with all his heart. We'll read verse 20 just to prove it. Second Chronicles chapter 31. The key verse is 21, but we're going to start in 20. Because Bill booed. <laughs> he booed tongue in cheek, and we all know that. But thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. What's the next sentence? So he prospered. Oh, like Jeconiah, who he was a bad guy. Hezekiah, he was a good king. He loved the Lord with all his heart, and because of that, God blessed him such that everything he did, he prospered. And what did his son do? Turned away from God. 
Let's go to Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra is at the time of the return from the Babylonian captivity. Ezra is right before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 7. Verse 10. So Ezra is going to lead that first return from Babylon to rebuild the temple. It says in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. On the fir- uh, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Why? Because they went to captain in the first place because they did not keep the commandments of God, right? So as he leads the return, how has he set his heart? To make sure the people are obedient. Was that the time they came up with the synagogue system? That's the time that they came up with the synagogue system saying the fathers were not teaching the children, so we'll establish synagogues so everybody can go and learn the Torah even if their fathers did not teach them. Ezra was making sure. Ezra was at least trying to make sure. It didn't work out quite so well, but... Still doesn't. But he tried. (laughs) Psalm 37. Psalm 37. How did the Lord feel about synagogues? He attended them and taught in them every Shabbat. Psalm 37, 31. And we'll start in verse 30 for context. Or even in 27. Look how beautiful that is. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. That means if you're doing evil, are you on the path to eternal life? No, which means you need to repent, turn around, do good, not evil. For because the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. So how is God defining saints? Those who are doing evil or those who departed from evil to do good? Those who do good. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of justice. Now here's the key verse. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Doesn't say the law of his God is in a scroll in the library that he never visits, right? It's on his heart. How many people do you think are going to open their eyes on judgment day and say, you know, I should have taken the Bible off the shelf and at least looked at it once? Yeah. But what does the New Testament say about synagogues? It says, do not depart from the synagogue. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Yes. 
Hebrews 10, they certainly teach this one in a different way, don't they? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Whoops, I have a red number one. Let me check and see what it is. Oh, can I put everybody on mute? Yes, I will. Hebrews 10, 24 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the closer we come to the day of the Lord, the more important it is not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Preacher after preacher says, that means come to church on Sunday morning. But what does the Greek say? It says, Episunagogen, do not forsake the assembling in the synagogue. As is the manner of some. There were some, especially, that were not born Jewish who didn't want to study in the synagogue. They wanted to go off and start something new. Separate and not be a part of the synagogue system. And what does God say? Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Remain in the synagogue. It's kind of what happened today, where they've gone off and done their own thing. Yep. On the first day. Yep. Okay, we looked at Psalm 37 31. Let's go to Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 8. You know this is a psalm of David, even if you didn't look up at the top. Because in verse 8 it says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law, your Torah, is within my heart. Who's the I in this psalm, in that verse? It's Messiah, that's right. Look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book or in the volume of the book. It is written of me. The Bible's not written about David. It's written about Messiah. Is there any other way we can know that this is about Messiah and not David? Because Isaiah 11 says his desire is to do the law of the Lord. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7 says, this is about the Lord. You have to start in verse 5. Therefore when he capitalized, and in the Greek there are capital letters, so this is meant to be capitalized. Therefore when he came into the world he said, and then it quotes from Psalm chapter 40. Okay, let's go on to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. You people in whose heart is my law. So who are those who know righteousness? Those who have in their heart the Torah, God's law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. 
what's he talking about? Have any of you ever been insulted or put down because you followed the commandments of God? <laughs> Probably each and every one of you, right? Yeah, me too. Jeremiah 31. We mentioned a few minutes ago. Let's read about it. The New Testament is the law written upon our hearts. How many churches say we're New Testament churches? We don't follow God's law. That's an oxymoron. Emphasis on moron. Please don't say that when it's being recorded, broadcast around the world. Because then I have to agree with it. <laughs> yeah. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant. Referring to the new covenant. That I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. This is the covenant that is sealed by the blood of Messiah. I will put my law, the word there is Torah. I will put my Torah in their minds and write it on their what? On their hearts. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. So if you are a new covenant believer, it means that the law of God is in your mind and in your heart. That it's your heart's desire to follow God's commandments. Does that make you think of what Messiah said in John 14, 15? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. It's the same as Jeremiah 31, 33. I just want everybody to know that. Because there's a lot of people, if you tell them, look at Jeremiah 31, 33, they say, well, that's in the Old Covenant. Well, look at Hebrews 8, 10. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws, my Torah, in their mind. Write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It says the same thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. Paul says, the Holy Spirit sent this. This is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. In verse 15 he says, who said that? The Holy Spirit. Does that mean it's true? That means it's true. Back to Deuteronomy 11. We're up to verse 19. Deuteronomy 11, verse 19. You shall teach them to your children. Speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. The word for that is tamid. T-A-M-I-D. Tamid. It means regularly and continually. Not once upon a time. 
not just in preparation for the bar bat mitzvah, but teach them constantly. Hey, what's that word again? Tamid. T-A-M-I-D. Tamid. You've probably heard it before like in Nair Tamid, which was the light of the menorah by the Holy of Holies that was to be continually lighted at all times. That's why it's called the Nair Tamid. If you are not teaching your children the commandments of God constantly, trust me, the devil is teaching them other things constantly. Yeah. So his guidance here is to teach it, to continue to teach it, and to teach it some more. Mm-hmm. It's a constant ongoing activity. Yep. Okay, verse 20. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What do you call the, what's the Hebrew word for doorposts? Mezuzot, right. So that little box that we put on the doorposts of the house, it's called the mezuzah. That's just singular for mezuzot. It contains the portion from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 because they're reading very much the same. Verse 21, that. Here's the blessing God promises if you will do this. That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them like the days of the heavens above the earth. If Israel had not turned away from God and worshiped to the and turned to the worship of idols, would they ever have been sent into captivity? No. So what does it mean that they had the Assyrian captivity, followed by the Babylonian captivity, followed by the Roman diaspora? means they were unfaithful, unrepentant, they were disobedient, they didn't learn from each captivity, they had to go through another. What's different about this last captivity that's gone on for almost 2,000 years? When is it totally over? When the people cry, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord, and Messiah returns and sets up the kingdom. Everyone who goes alive into the kingdom of God on earth and their human bodies are saved. From that point, no more captivity. So if they had not gone astray, how many captivities would they have suffered? None. None. Wait. Yes, ma'am. Um, when you think about that, what you just said, in light of the fact that we're supposed to be caught up the um, you know just before the great tribulation how did the Jewish people think of that or they never knew that they never knew that they were going to be taken up taken away from anything like we are waiting for as believers in Yeshua we are waiting for being taken up and out of the way like Noah so I don't I don't really understand. Did they have any idea of this? God told them over and over before they ever went into the land. And they're required to have this read to them every seven years. 
and to be that teaching their children constantly. What's that? Yeah, that they would go into captivity if they turned away from the Lord. Okay, so they never were aware of the fact that they would be caught up and taken away like it says Noah and Lot were taken out of that tribulation. So we can't refer to them ever knowing that. They, they couldn't possibly know that, right? I'm just talking about whether the Jews understand the concept of the rapture and resurrection, they did not understand it. It's in Isaiah chapter 26, but they did not understand that the resurrection included the rapture, if that's your question. But they were yeah, told so over we, and over again in the Torah that if they are disobedient to God, they're going to go into captivity. Okay, so basically, if we were to talk to Christians about that, um, they never knew. They knew that, like in the last days, it's going to be like Noah, it's going to be like Lot, but it is not for them. It was never for them. I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 26 in case, in case this will clear it up. Isaiah 26 is written to Israel, about Israel, by a prophet of Israel who intends to go in the rapture and resurrection. Isaiah chapter 26, starting in verse 19. Their minds are blinded still, so even if it's presented to them, they don't seem to understand it. That's kind of what she's getting at. But the, you have about 200,000 Messianic believers now in Israel. Um, so they're beginning to have the blinders taken off. But for most of Israel, um, I mean, these scholars and doctors, and uh, they simply, their minds are blind. If you say, why don't you repent and then you could be taken away in the rapture, they don't know what you're talking about. They don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And again, God says he will make their minds dull of understanding. Yeah. Even though he presents it in his word, yeah. they still don't get it. Yeah. I don't think that's her question, though. That's no. not her question. Her no, question. I, I, do, I do get it from what he's saying because, see, I, I don't know how to talk to some people that they don't believe, like you're saying, they just disregard the Old Testament, okay? But we're told that it's like Noah and it's like Lot. It's going to be like that in the last days. But Noah and Lot were in the Old Testament. So I think he explained it. Okay. Okay. Good enough then. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. If you understand it, that's good enough for me. Deuteronomy chapter 11. We're up to verse 22. For because if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, What's the first thing he says? To love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. And you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. If you carefully keep all these commandments I command you to do. To love the Lord your God. 
to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him. The Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Let's start in Revelation 7. Revelation 7. God bless you. Let's start in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verse 13, Who are these people? Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? Said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How is it that so many people that have become believers die in the tribulation period? They die for their faith. That's true. And a false Messiah is going to go after anybody who doesn't worship him and behead them, right? Let's go to Revelation 14, 12. What causes these believers to be so hunted by the false messiah? It's not because they conform to the world. It's not because they'll bow down to the false messiah. That's for sure. It says in Revelation 14, 12, Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. So Satan is trying to wipe out anybody and everybody he can that comes to faith in Messiah during the tribulation period because if they cry for the Lord to return, then he's coming. So what are the three wars that take place in the tribulation period? First is the Psalm 83 war. Those that come against Israel in the Psalm 83 war are those Muslim nations that share a border with Israel. So just look at a map of the Middle East, and if a nation touches Israel on the border, they're going to be against Israel in the tribulation period. What might cause them to do that? What's going on in the news today? Israel has a new government, right? Who's just been put in charge of security on the Temple Mount? Ben Gavir. Ben Gavir's attitude is that the Jews have every bit as much right to go on the Temple Mount, pray and worship their God as anybody else does. And intends to have the Temple Mount partitioned. Muslims can have this side. The Jews will have this side. How is the Muslim world likely to react if that happens? Psalm 83 war, right? Yeah. Who wins the Psalm 83 war? Israel. Israel. The Israeli defense forces with the help and mercy of God is going to 
defeat them wholly and expand their borders out. Now, one of the main tenets of the Muslim faith is that if a piece of land has ever been under Muslim control, you cannot allow it to be under control of Jews or Christians. Because if you do, you admit that Allah is not greater than the God of the Christians and the Jews. So when Israel expands out its borders, what are the rest of the Muslim nations going to do? They're going to attack. That's the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war called the Battle of Gog and Magog. So they're going to try and destroy Israel, push it into the sea to recapture all those lands that used to be Muslim lands, to put them back under Muslim control. That's why this idea of land for peace will never work. Because the Muslims don't want peace with Israel. They want peace without Israel. They want to drive Israel into the sea to recapture those lands. Yes, ma'am? Well, does this tie in? Um, I don't know if anybody has, knows about this. I just saw yesterday, I think it was, that there are Muslim camps being set up uh, just across the Mexican border on the Mexican side. Is that right? Yeah. Does that, how would that tie in with anything else? We'll have to wait and see. Did you know there are great Muslim populations in the state of Georgia and various areas? Yeah. Michigan, Minnesota is just about Michigan, Minnesota, yeah. Is this all just coincidental? Probably not, but we'll see. So that was the first war, Psalm 83. The second war, the Ezekiel 38 and 39, Battle of Gog and Magog. So it's the third war. That's Armageddon in Revelation 16 and Zechariah chapter 14. Let's look at Zechariah 14 because it tells us more than Revelation 16 does about that same battle. And if you hear people say there's only one war in the tribulation period, it's because the same Hebrew word milchama means war or battle. So some people look at these as three battles of a war, and other people describe it as three wars. So it, it's just semantics. It's over a seven-year period. The Psalm 83 war is going to happen almost immediately. Well, actually, that's pretty quick in the reference of wars that we fought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of Israel's wars have been how long? About a day, six yeah. days. Yeah, six days, yeah. And I think Ezekiel 38 is about at the three-year point. And then Armageddon is at the end. Here it is in Zechariah 14, starting in verse 1. Behold, what's that? What's that great war after the thousand-year millennial reign? That was called Battle of Gog and Magog, but it's simply used to say it's going to be kind of like that. In that, who destroys Gog and Magog? God does. At the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, who destroys Satan's uprising? God does. So Israel doesn't have to do it. God's got it in hand. I just had, I had the, I thought that, you know, the, the former wars of, you know, what we just talked about, and the Armageddon was at the end of the thousand year. No, Armageddon's at the end of the seven year tribulation period. Okay. This is when Messiah returns. Okay, thank you. Yep, 14.1. Behold, the day of the Lord's coming. Your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Who? All the nations. So it's not just the Muslim nations that share a border. 
It's not just the Muslim nations that don't share a border, but it's all the nations, which means it's the United Nations involved. The oh, well, what the United Nations just do? Oh, my. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity. What, are, what is the nations of the world demand that Israel give half of Jerusalem to the Palestinians for a Palestinian state? When Israel won't do it, they're finally going to bring in the military to force it. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. That's Revelation 19.11. It's Armageddon. Happens on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Verse 4, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Okay, so those are the three wars. Israel would not have suffered any of those wars if they had always stayed true to God. None of the captivities, none of these wars. So back to Deuteronomy 11. Verse 24. Yep. After a thousand years of the kingdom with Messiah on the throne, there's love, peace, and harmony. There's prosperity. Everything's great. When Satan's released, he immediately can raise an army. Yeah. So it's like, it's not even a threat. Right. God does not sit in heaven terrified that he might lose this war. This doesn't happen. I just looked up an interesting fact. In 2003, the population of the old city was roughly 4,000 Jews, 31,000 Arabs. So they've got more than half of it already. As far as the old city goes, yeah. And I heard somebody, was it Susie? Yes, sir. <laughs> I was looking at the scriptures in Revelation 7 that we read, yep. uh, 14, where it talks about these are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation. Yeah. That word out stands out to me because it makes me think, are taken away to before the processes or taken through processes of tribulation. I'm sorry, was there a question? If so, I didn't catch it. Or if it was just a comment, I understand. Yeah. yeah. That, that word The word out of. Yeah, that word out is interesting because it, yeah, are, it, are we coming out before as far as those that received their white robes? Are these the ones that made it through and we're already gone? In Revelation chapter 7, none of these people were saved when the rapture and resurrection came in chapter 4. These got saved as a result of the preaching of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, like 144,000 Apostle Pauls to take the gospel around the world. So they got saved during the tribulation period and were put to death by the false Messiah because of their faith. So it could even mean, so in that situation, 
translation you say it actually means through. They came through the tribulation. No, they didn't make it through the tribulation. They were taken during the tribulation by death. Okay. Yeah. They did not survive it. These are all martyrs. Okay. Go back to Deuteronomy 11 to verse 24. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, that's the Mediterranean, shall be your territory. Has Israel ever had all that land? Answer is no. When do they get all that land? After the Psalm 83 war, when they push out their borders. Because if you notice, this includes Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, those Muslim nations that share a border. And in the kingdom, they will have all that land. So the question is, Israel has never had all that land, but God promised it, so why haven't they had it? Because of their disobedience. That's exactly right. Look at what we have lost because we were disobedient. He told them, I'm only going to give it to you a little bit at a time, but they kept being taken out into captivity before they could expand out and take it all, huh? Like he's testing their faith to see how obedient they'll be, and we didn't do so good, did we? No. Okay. Back to Deuteronomy. We're up to verse 24. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads. So the areas they describe are Arabia to the south, Lebanon to the north, the Euphrates to the east, and the Mediterranean to the west. The Euphrates begins in Turkey. It runs down through Iraq, and all the way down to the sea. Verse 25, ooh. Verse 25 says, No man shall be able to stand against you, meaning no army can conquer you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. How did the city of Jericho react when Israel was about to cross the river Jordan? They were scared to death. Why? Because they had heard what God did to the Egyptians and to Sihon and to Og. They were terrified. Would they have attacked Israel? No. But of course, Israel was told to attack them and to take the land, and they in fact did that. But the point remains, had they stayed true to God and never turned away, no nation would ever have dared to invade them. Does sin have consequences? Sin has consequences. Yeah. Look at verses 26 to 28 as a group. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. What does that mean? You get a choice. If I said to you, you have a choice between $100 cash or a beating with a whip, 
How many of you would want to, oh, let me think about that? Well, God says, I said before you today, a blessing and a curse. And which did they choose? The curse, the whip, why? It tells us in Hebrews it's because of a lack of faith. So they have free will. They get to make a choice, the blessing or the curse. It says, verse 27, here's what the blessing is. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today, go after other gods which you've not known. So verses 27 and 28 are how we indicate our choice. You have the same choice today. Life and death, good and evil. If you want to choose life, you do it by being obedient to the commandments of the Lord out of faith and love. If you'd rather have the curse, you simply say, I'll do what I want. What does it really come down to? If people truly believed there was the choice, who would choose the weapon? Nobody. So that's why God keeps saying you're being disobedient because of lack of faith. The scribes and Pharisees, were they in the temple every week? Were they praying on the street corners with tzitzit that ran along the ground? Yes. It's not that they didn't believe there is a God. It's that they don't believe God will do what he says he will do. Absolutely. Because you're saying God wouldn't do these things, and God's saying I absolutely would, but you get to make a choice. Yes. How can you say God's unfair when He lets you choose? Yeah. In the book of Ezekiel, he's, you know, the people were saying, "Oh, God's so unfair," and God said, "No, it's not you. It's not me being unfair to you. It falls back on you." Yeah. So when God says choose life or death, does he leave it at that? He says, choose life. This is the choice you need to make. He tells you the answer. How many of you had professors in college that told you the answer at the test? Hey, for number one, Mark A. I didn't have any like that. I didn't have professors like that. You had to do your own work. But here, God makes it so easy. It's a pass-fail, and there's only one question. Are you saved by faith or aren't you? How do you mark A or B, though? It tells us right here. If you want to mark A and choose life, in verse 27, then obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. People say, well, that's salvation by works. No, no, it's not. The only reason that they obey the commandments of God is out of faith. Because they believe God says what he says. I probably have driven you guys crazy with this, but go back to Genesis 15. I'll say it again. No, you're not going to obey the 
You're not going to obey the commandments of a God you don't even believe in. That's exactly what the book of Hebrews is trying to tell us. They, in the wilderness, did they see God on the mountain in fire and in smoke? And they saw the mountain tremble and they heard the voice of God and they told Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. They believed there was a God. But did they follow God? No, and it says in Hebrews they were disobedient because they lacked faith. I want everybody to understand that the word faith doesn't mean exactly what you hear every time a preacher opens his mouth. Look at Genesis 15, 6. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. That word believed is the Hebrew word ha'amin. H-E apostrophe E-M-I-N Ha'amin and it's the he feel form which is causative of the word from which we get Amen. So be it. He believed in the Lord means God said he would do it and Abraham believed that God would do what God said he would do. So when you talk about the people at Mount Sinai did they believe God? No. They believed there was a God, but they didn't believe that God meant what he said. The Hebrew word imunah, which is the Hebrew word for faith, comes from the very same verb as believed here and as amen, which means so be it. God said it, it's going to happen. Now bring this back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 to 28. God says, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. If you want the blessing, obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And if you would rather have the whip, then turn aside. If you truly believe that the wages of sin is death, and God will send you to the lake of fire if you're not obedient out of faith, and you spit in God's face, what does that mean? You don't really believe that he'll do what he says. Go to Revelation 16. I hope I'm being clear. I'm not sure I am. Revelation 16. Look at verse 9. We're in the vile or bold judgments, depending upon your translation. The wrath of God is being poured out without measure. We're saying, Men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. Do they believe that there's a God? Yes, because they're blaspheming him to his face. It says, And they did not repent and give him glory. So people would say, Well, they believe in God, therefore they're saved. Demons believe, Demons, Demons believe and tremble. You can read the book of James. You believe in one God, hey, you do well, but remember, the demons believe too and tremble. Are they saved? Absolutely. No. So these guys that are blaspheming God to his face, somehow they still believe they can win? They still believe they can win. They believe that God cannot make me change. I'm going to do what I want to do, and God can just lump it. Covered in 
there is boils, they can't see, you know, the drinking water is made of blood, but they, what is, what's happening if they just keep, want, want to keep doing? It's, they, they've sealed their fate. You know what I'm saying? It's, taking the, the mark of the beast, so they're... They they're seal their fate when they take the mark of the beast, but they so want to continue in sin that they're unwilling to repent. The New Testament tells us that repeatedly, right? Right. The false teachers are teaching falsely because they want people to continue in their sins. You know, like you, you hear people you know, like say, you know, like we're going to come back bigger and better. Like when some yeah. terrible thing Build happens, better. You know, it's always like a pride thing instead of a humility. Thing. Right. Yep. Why do false teachers want people to continue in sins? Because they want the people to lift the false teacher up. I need another airplane. I need a bigger castle. Tell me how great I am. Yes, Bill. I give a testimony of something I observed this past summer personally. That I, where it was a nice clear day, and I walked out. The temperature wasn't but about maybe the high 80s, mid to high 80s. Mid to high 80s. And I walked out in it with just a, a tank top shirt. And it felt like I was standing next to a great fire and in, in, in burning. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in Revelation 16? I thought about that. I, when I felt that, I said, Lord, if, if this is just a little taste of what it might be like your word talks about, about what you say in, the, in your word, that... I don't see how people, like we've just been saying, I don't see how people can stand it and not realize. Yep. You know. Yep. Well, so. Don't do this for real, because then you'll sue me, but just picture in your mind. Light a candle on your kitchen table and hold your hand in it until you decide that was a stupid thing to do. Now, God has said that People are going to get cast into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever. If you truly believe that, you would never continue in sin, right? It's only because you don't believe God would actually do that, that you'd be willing to say, I'm going to continue to live my lifestyle, and God will just have to accept it. And I've heard people say that if... He is like that. I don't want to serve him. I don't want to serve a God that's going to be like that. I've heard that too. I've heard people say that. Yeah, I remember a young lady. We were studying in the Old Testament, and God told Saul to go out and destroy the Amalekites, every man, woman, and child. Afterwards, she said, I'm not going to serve God anymore. He's just an old meanie. Oh, he's holy. Broke my heart. Okay, back to Deuteronomy 11, though. Verse 29. Now it shall be, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you shall go to possess, back then it was called Canaan, today I call it Israel, the world calls it the West Bank, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. What's that mean? They're literally going to stand on two mountains. Go to Deuteronomy 27. And call out the blessings and the cursings and say, choice A is this mountain, choice B is this mountain. Which one do you want to come to? Go to Deuteronomy 27, starting in verse 1. God is nothing but 
crystal clear as far as I'm concerned in the scripture. Deuteronomy 27 verse 1. Just quickly because we're going to go over this later. Now Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, Keep all the commandments I command you today. Shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you will set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write in them all the words of this law when you crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, you shall whitewash them with lime. That you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, you shall not use an iron tool. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. And then look at verse 11. Moses commanded the people on the same day saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you've crossed over the Jordan. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And then if you read down, they're going to scream out, Cursed is the one who does this, and cursed is the one who does that. And then the people are going to say at the end, verse 26, Amen. So they're going to agree that if we break the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, that we deserve to be cursed. So we're going to be careful not to do that. Now let's go to Joshua chapter 8. What, what's the, what, excuse me. Uh-huh. The, uh, the tribes that you mentioned here, you have some under the curse, um, you have some under the blessing. Is that those tribes are being blessed and the others are being cursed or what? Remember I said, just a quick overview because we're going to come study right. this chapter shortly. <laughs> okay. Joshua chapter 8. we got to see, did they do it? Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, that refers to Deuteronomy, an altar of whole stones, over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And he offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests. The Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. So Jew and Gentile alike, right? Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. So at that point, which of them knew which are the blessings and which are the cursings? Every single one. 
And how long did it take them before they went astray? About the time they came out the other side of the mountain. Nope, not that quickly. <laughs> as soon as Joshua was dead, then they turned away. And they started a generation against the Lord, a generation for the Lord. And they start to flip-flop back and forth. And they start to live out the blessings and the cursings. Back to Deuteronomy 11. We have th a couple more verses, three more verses. But they're very important. Verse 30, are they not on the other side of the Jordan? Toward the setting of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Moreh. So Moses says you're going to do this in Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal there on the other side of the river. What did God promise to do? Bring them over the river and give them the land. So when they come to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal God has fulfilled his promise to bring them into the land and to give it to them. So God doesn't say, promise that you'll do the blessings and not the cursings before I fulfill my word. God fulfills his promise first. Then he looks to the people to keep their promises. Yeah. That way, when it, anybody doesn't keep their part, that got nothing. They can't say a thing. So God's already done his part. Right. They can't say, well, I don't know if God will do his part or not. Therefore, I don't know if I want to do mine. They've already seen God do exactly what God promised to do. And now he says, okay, I've done my part. Now make your choice. Therefore, you will Yeah. Verse 31. For you will cross over the Jordan. And go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you will possess it and dwell in it. Now the children of Israel had reason to be afraid as Moses is talking to them. Is the Jordan River a little creek? No, at this time of year, it's a mighty raging river and very dangerous to cross. So what happened when the priests carrying the ark, or the Levites carrying the ark, put the first foot in the Jordan River? It split. Half went north, half went south. Just like happened at the Red Sea 40 years earlier. So when they crossed over the Jordan, did they cross over going, well, I don't know if it was God who did this. Maybe it was just our, our fierce armies, our, our fierce-looking soldiers. No. They knew when God split the river that it's God who's conquering the land, God who's fulfilling his promise. Verse 32, And you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I set before you today. Chapter 12, verse 1. When they passed over Jordan and they took those first steps into the river, that was, um, wasn't it the Levites carry the ark. The Levites carry the ark. The first ones into the water. And when the Levites put their first feet in the water, the water mm -hmm. split. It would, take a it would take a tremendous amount of faith to be the first one to put the foot in the water, you bet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But notice, the word careful here is actually the word to guard. In verse 32, to observe 
it's actually the words to do. And all the statutes and judgments which I set before you, that's actually a participle. I am setting. Not once upon a time, continuous action. The statutes and judgments are to be fulfilled not once, but they are continually with us. Continually for us to observe. Continually choosing, do I want God's blessing or do I want God's curse? And then, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Oh, what have we covered up to this point in the way of the commandments? The Ten Commandments. From chapter 12 on, we get the rest of the commandments that are to be observed for now and forever by all people. So these are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. So in addition to the Ten Commandments, we've had the Shema and the Vehavta. But that's all that Moses has recounted so far. But as he's got him focused now, do you want the blessing or do you want the curse? Now it's time to say, and let me remind you of the rest. When it says you're to be careful, what does that mean? To guard yourself? Do we treat it casually? Do we say, well, you know, I'll, I'll have me a, a shrimp salad today, but, but tomorrow I'll be better. No, that's not diligently. That's not carefully. And to observe the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to possess all the days that you live on the earth. How long are the statutes and judgments to be kept? Only always. Only forever. Is the earth still here? Verse 2, you shall utterly destroy. That's called an infinitive of emphasis. It's where you get the word utterly. There's not really a word utterly in Hebrew. God uses two forms of the same verb right next to each other to emphasize, I really, really, really mean it. So you shall utterly destroy, which means without hesitation, all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess. What do you know about every one of those nations? They worship other gods. They're pagans. They refuse to worship God. They have terrible sexual immorality. This is the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Every green tree. What kind of trees did they worship their gods under? Evergreen. Yeah, not fruit trees, but evergreen trees. Mm -hmm. Hollies, pines, such as that, the firs. Yeah. Verse 3, and you shall... Oops. For your notes, since I mentioned verse 2, the infinitive of emphasis, here are the two forms. 
avod and avod, which sound exactly the same, but one has an aleph, one has an ayin. So the the point is, don't leave a shred of it. Because what happens if you leave a shred of it? What will the people begin to do? To use it in the worship of the Lord our God. And what does God say? Let's read on. Verse 3. And you shall destroy their altars. Can't you just pour some oil on it and use it to worship God? No. Break their sacred pillars. At the entrance to a nation like Egypt, they would have a pillar... And what did the pillar represent? The God that this nation worships, the one they serve. So you destroy those as well. Burn their wooden images with fire. But the words in Hebrew are not wooden images. They're asherim. These are the evergreen trees that they use to worship the pagan gods. The kind they would do such thing as cut it down, bring it into the house, put it on a base so it won't fall over and decorate it with silver and gold. Those things. Other gods and destroy their names from that place. How much of their worship was to be left? None. Verse 4 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. To do that is called syncretism. To take that which is pagan and adapt it and make it used in the worship of the true and living God. What does God say about doing that? Do not do it. So if you go to most any encyclopedia and look up Christmas trees or Easter eggs, it will tell you this is a pre-Christian tradition. If it's not Jewish and it's pre-Christian, what was it? Pagan. Pagan. So why did they adapt it to the worship of the true and living God? No. Um, Kirk Cameron says in his video, yes, the Christmas tree was pagan. But then we notice that it points upward toward God, and that makes it a good Christian symbol. Yeah, I don't think so. Let me read you an article by Dr. James Slobodzian who is not Messianic, so that's why I picked it. It was published on December 19th, 2017. He is a theologian. It says, Bible scholars inform us that the modern-day Christmas tree finds its origin in the Asherah tree, or pole, that is condemned over 40 times by God in the Bible. Anyone can very easily go to a number of secular and biblical encyclopedias and learn that the practice of placing evergreen trees inside of a home was something practiced by the heathens all over the world as representing this, quote, Garden of Eden tree, end quote. During the shortest daylight periods of the year, that is, the time around the winter solstice, historically this was the practice of erecting the Asherah tree or pole to worship the goddess of Asherah. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah condemned this pagan idolatry practice of cutting an Asherah tree out of the forest to decorate with silver and gold. Then he says, who was Asherah? What does she have to do with the Christmas tree? 
says, according to the New International Version Bible's commentary, Asher is most often identified as the chief female goddess of the Canaanites. Where did the Canaanites live? In the land of Canaan, the one that Israel's about to come into and conquer. And the mistress of the sun god, Baal. The goddess of Asherah, also called Ishtar or Easter, is also known in the Bible as the Queen of Heaven in Jeremiah 7.18 and Jeremiah 44.17-25 and is worshipped as Artemis by the Ephesians in the New Testament's book of Acts in chapter 19 verses 23-27. to Her worship glorified sex and war and was accompanied by male temple prostitution. Baal was also the god of fertility, and worship of Baal included sacred prostitution, male and female. And it goes on, but I thought that was enough of that one. Slobodzian, S-L-O-B-O-D-Z-I-E-N. You're welcome. And then also took another one down off the internet from an article called Why Do We Put Up Christmas Trees? Question mark. The ancient roots of this decorative tradition from ancientorigins.net It's called Christmas Tree Origin. It says a Christmas tree is an iconic feature of the holiday season. You can find this symbol on greeting cards and advertisements shaped into cookies plastered across wrapping paper in the homes of millions of people around the world. But few of us stop to consider why we go to the effort of decorating a tree each year, apart from thinking of its value in increasing our, quote, Christmas cheer, end quote. And it says Martin Luther's role in popularizing the Christmas tree. It says, although Christmas celebrations are often associated with the birth of Jesus and Christian beliefs, open parent, however, many non-Christians celebrate Christmas too, parent, evergreen trees had no place in early Christianity. The famous symbol wasn't even mentioned in relation to Christmas until 1605. It has been argued that the connection was first made in Germany, where it may have been popularized by the German reformer Martin Luther. Luther is said to have been inspired by the beauty of a Christmas Eve starry night sky. He decided to replicate the image by cutting down an evergreen tree and putting lit candles on it. Please don't never do that, especially not in the house. It did not take long until German homes were decorated with candies, fruits, and paper roses for Christmas time. Then it says ancient roots of evergreen tree significance. Although the link between the evergreen tree and Christmas is relatively recent, the significance of the tree itself is much older. An interest in the evergreen tree can be traced all the way back to the worship of the sun god Mithras around 600 BC. Mithras and Baal, one and the same. This god was often pictured in or next to an evergreen tree. And the article goes on, but I thought that was enough. So let us go back to Deuteronomy 12 while we have still a minute and a half. Verse 4 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. If you turn to verse 31 of the same chapter, God repeats it. He says it at the beginning of the chapter. He says it at the end of the chapter. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. Whoops. Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. 
For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Did Israel start doing that too? Go up to the Temple Mount and burn one of their children to Moloch in the Hinnom Valley? Yep. So verse 32 says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. And with that, we have run out of time. We'll bring our Bible study to close and close in prayer.